Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. This week I would like to look at the work of Ted Hughes, who was, incidentally, not that incidentally, he was Poet Laureate from 1984 to 1998. But I'm going to look at some of his earlier stuff today. I'm going to look at a couple of poems, actually the same age as me. Make of that what you will. He is, Ted Hughes, one of those poets who is a victim of his own biography, a bit like Dylan Thomas, for example. People are a bit more interested in what he did than what he wrote in direct contravention of what the poet W.H. Auden said about poets' biographies. He said biographies should be about people who did things rather than thought things. And so he didn't really approve of um, poets' biographies. I'm kind of with him on that. If I ever do a podcast called Lives of the Poets, I'll make up for all this, but I won't do that. I discovered Ted Hughes when I was a schoolboy. Weirdly, at school, poetry wasn't really central to my reading. Reading wasn't that central to my reading until I got into my late teens. But the things that really stuck with me from school, and uh, something I never read now, were short stories. Three short stories I read at school still stick with me. One of them was called A Sound of Thunder by uh, Ray Bradbury, the uh, science fiction writer. And um, I think it was the idea of the butterfly effect, which comes from that short story, that you could go back and do a minor thing in time and completely change the future. And then another one which again, really moved me and stopped with me, was a story called Indian Camp by Ernest Hemingway. And the third one was a 1967 short story by Ted Hughes called The Rain Horse. And The Rain Horse, I remember it so clearly, and it's a long, long time ago, was about a man who went back to where he grew up And he went back in full office worker garb of the grey suit. I remember it as grey, at least. And um, he went for a walk and it rained heavily and he got lost and he kept being attacked by this black horse that seemed to represent the very raw wildness of nature, red in tooth and claw, as um, Alfred Lord Tennyson put it and it showed how weak and helpless and how the man had had lost himself in the city but not terribly relevant to me at the time but my goodness it stuck with me so that was my Ted Hughes experience and that theme of um, dark and menacing nature runs through a lot of his poems and um, certainly is present in the two I want to talk about today. Um, he was a a real sort of bluff northerner, Ted Hughes, and uh, the sort of bloke you would imagine 
would be very no-nonsense. In fact, he was sort of pro-nonsense. I think all poets have to be slightly pro-nonsense because poetry on one level is nonsense in that it doesn't really do anything practical in the world. What it does is internal, dare I say it, spiritual even. But he, Ted Hughes, certainly believed in stuff other than the nuts and bolts of life. I mean, I mean, he believed in astrology. He had a sort of a pagan worship of nature. Everything that happened, he seemed to interpret as some sort of symbol or message. And I kind of like that. I like that this big, strong Yorkshire bloke lived poetry like that. Symbols everywhere, echoes and insights from a poetic world just behind ours like that you know that celtic christian belief that there are thin places as they call them places where the separation between this world and the other world almost ceases to exist and we can uh, we can almost see through to the other side that was ted hughes's life he always felt he could see beyond the facts, see beyond the physical. And uh, he, so he was, he was at the shame and end of poet, is what I would say about him. So a very interesting bloke. And I want to talk about his first ever collection of poetry, which, as I said, is from 1957. I might not have said that, but that is when I was made also or at least when I um, emerged. And uh, that first collection was called The Hawk in the Rain. Already you can see that the rain horse thing wasn't uh, an isolated piece of creativity on Hughes' part. The first poem I want to talk about is called The Thought Fox. It's a very famous Ted Hughes poem. And of course I'm going to qualify that as I always do, by saying that when I say very famous, I mean there might be some people listening to this podcast who's heard of it. That is very famous in poetry terms. OK, I'm going to go straight in. It's from the 1957 collection. And the Thought Fox, here's the first stanza. The poem consists of three sentences and the first stanza is uh, also the first sentence. I imagine this midnight moment's forest. Something else is alive beside the clock's loneliness and this blank page where my fingers move. So it begins, I imagine... That's the first two words of the poem, and I think that's incredibly significant. I think that is a sort of a title in itself. That is the subject matter of the poem, I imagine. And it's a word we use a lot, but do we ever really think about what it means? Poets do, of course. I imagine this midnight moment's forest. Midnight moment taking up the m sounds from imagine 
so that the line I imagine this midnight moment forest that F sort of comes in suddenly amidst the M's and it has a sort of spiky feeling that I'm 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 sitting here comfortably but I'm thinking about something a bit more dangerous I imagine this midnight moments forest so this moment as if it had a forest something else is alive he says there's something else I feel beside the clocks loneliness that's a great line isn't it you only really ever hear a clock when you're on your own I think and this blank page where my fingers move so there's something else this midnight moment the clock ticking me sitting over a blank page where my fingers move there's something else going on something else is alive and it's in this the forest of this moment i'm seeing this moment i'm seeing where i am internally as if it was a forest very hard not to feel a bit of dante in this because right at the beginning of inferno he's lost in a forest but i'm not pushing that element i've been reading dante a lot just lately not in the original i hasten to add so i'm a bit I'm a bit Dante-fied. That last line of the stanza, and this blank page where my fingers move. So we know he's alone because of the clock's loneliness. We know he's imagining and he has a blank page in front of him. So this is the writer, isn't it? Trying, trying to create this blank page where my fingers move, but they don't seem to be writing these fingers or it wouldn't be a blank page. It's as if they're grasping for something. And we don't know whether this is a page with him holding a pen or whether it's a typewriter. I have theories on that, which I will uh, share as we go on. Right, I'm going to give you the next chunk of poem. I think you have the setting. Imagine... Many of you probably won't have to imagine it, sitting lonely in a room, the clock's ticking, and you're staring at a blank page. Through the window I see no star, something more near, though deeper within darkness, is entering the loneliness, cold, Delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig, leaf. Two eyes serve a movement that now and again, now and now and now, sets neat prints into the snow between trees. This is obviously the something else is alive that he refers to in the first stanza the first sentence in fact and it seems to be a fox let's find out more through the window i see no star remember this is a guy who's sort of 
waiting for something to happen to make him right. And I think it's a cliche to imagine inspiration coming cosmically from on high, from the muses, this this very special, this noble moment. But through the window, he sees no star. That isn't happening. Something more near, though deeper within darkness, is entering the loneliness. So something more near, I think something in his head. That's where it's coming from in, in him. Though deeper within darkness. So he doesn't see a star in the sky. That makes it for a very dark night sky but not as dark as this. This is deeper within darkness. The imagination deeper and darker than a starless sky. Or at least Ted Hughes' imagination is there. Something more near, though deeper within darkness, is entering the loneliness. So it's nearer, but harder to really defined because it's buried deeper within darkness and it's entering this loneliness. So something's happening now. He's staring at the blank page. He's not getting this divine inspiration, but he is getting some sort of contact. Cold delicately as the dark snow, a fox's nose touches twig. Leaf so cold, delicately. It's all happening quite subtly and delicately as the dark snow. Maybe that again is a reference to the page sitting there like a field covered in snow. Dark because it's now being infiltrated by this deeper within darkness presence. A fox's nose touches twig, leaf. So it's got a reality about it. It's not it's not some sort of it's it's not like a patronus in Harry Potter. It's a real dirty breathing fox. Two eyes serve a movement. I think that's because in this darkness. I don't know if you've ever seen a fox when it's been very dark, but often you just get the eyes, you get that glow. And not always, it depends how the light's catching them, where they're looking. So two eyes serve a movement that now and again, now and now and now sets neat prints into the snow between trees. So this fox has emerged and it's... Eyes seem to be glowing in the dark. It's alive. It's fiery. And two eyes serve a movement. And that movement, this is what happens. That now and again, now and now and now sets neat prints into the snow between trees. And it seems to me, if we accept that the snow is a metaphor for the, the blank page, that the Neat prints appearing in the snow are words finally arriving on that blank page. In fact, when he says sets neat prints into the snow between trees, 
this. I'm gonna. You're gonna have to bear with me on this. I wonder if it could be a typewriter, and you know, you get those two things at either end that sort of holding it down. So you you have a very set parameter, and I wonder if he's seeing these uh, these neat prints appearing in the snow between the typewriter perimeters. I don't know. I don't know what you think about that. I definitely think that those prints appearing in the snow are words on the page because I think this fox seems to represent creativity creeping out of the darkness with fire and life about it. Hmm. Next bit. And warily a lame shadow lags by stump and in hollow of a body that is bold to come across clearings, an eye, a widening, deepening greenness, brilliantly, concentratedly coming about its business. Till with a sudden sharp hot stink of fox, it enters the dark hole of the head. And there ends the second sentence that began way back in the second stanza with through the window, I see no star. And I think this might be a continuing sentence, this central section, a sentence that lasts some... Uh, four and a half stanzas because it's about the flow beginning he doesn't want any breaks here it's happening creativity is coming it's creeping up on him and warily a lame shadow lags by stomp and in hollow so warily it's arriving with a bit of reticence a bit of edginess a lame shadow, it's walking uneasily, lags by stomping in hollow, it's not going very fast, it's holding back. This is what creativity feels like, isn't it? If you really ever try and think about your ideas and how they begin, and I know everyone who listens to this has ideas, because your ideas, people, it's quite a brave thing to actually try to express that process. But you can see, if you've sat in a lonely room staring at a blank page, it might be the only thing you can think about is creativity and how it works. And that feels to me how this poem must have come about. It lags by stomp and in hollow. You know we had the typewriter thing and you weren't sure about it. I wonder if... This thing, warily, a lame shadow lags by stomp and in hollow. I wonder if stomp raised things and hollow lowered things could possibly be a reference to letters in upper and lower case. If you don't like that, why don't you just trust me? And if I'm wrong, poetry encourages this kind of reaching out for extra meanings i like it and if i like it it's it's my meaning lags by stomping in hollow of a body that is bold to come so it was wary and it was it was lagging and it was lame 
But now it's a body that is bold to come across clearings. Now, can I tell you something about that? That is a break between stanzas. So this creature, this thing which may well represent creativity, remember the title of the poem is The Thought Fox. You might think that is leading the witness a bit, calling it that. Hard not to think of the fox as somehow associated with internal activity and creativity. But warily a lame shadow lags by stomp and in hollow. So you can see this fox just emerging from the darkness of a body that is bold to come across clearings. So, yeah, it might be wary and lagging and lame, but it's got guts. Ultimately, it's got the guts to come across clearings, to come out into the open. And what I love about that is when he says that he's bold to come across clearings, come not only ends a, the, uh, a line, it ends a stanza. So there is literally, when you look at the page, a clearing that that line has to cross, like the fox coming across an expanse of open snow. The line comes across an expanse of white page from one stanza across what in my book is probably a third of an inch of whiteness into the next stanza. So it says, of a body that is bold to come, end of stanza, cross the white page, across clearings, an eye, a widening, deepening greenness. Now, I don't know if foxes have green eyes, but I think that Ted Hughes's widening, deepening greenness is probably more about his pursuit of nature, that seems to be his arena, certainly at this stage. And a widening, deepening greenness seems to be him experiencing a oneness with that. He's getting into the right zone to write. He goes on. Across clearings and I are widening, deepening greenness, brilliantly, concentratedly coming about its own business. So this fox is up to something. It's, it's, a, it's a fox with a plan. It's on a mission. And it's really hard to understand a fox's own business. But that's creativity, isn't it? It's a mysterious, dark thing. And we don't really understand it. Last stanza. Till with a sudden, sharp, hot stink of fox... It enters the dark hole of the head. So that moment when you think, yes, this is what I'm going to write, with a sharp, hot stink of fox, this is what he's after. Truth, realism, punch you in the gut, stinking stuff that's got a proper furry, breathing filth about it. And it enters the dark hole of the head. It goes into his imagination. It's happening. That sentence ends. There is just a line and a half left. The window is starless, 
still. He didn't need that highfalutin' bright light of inspiration. He's got this deeper, darker brand. The clock ticks, so nothing's moved, really. Nothing's altered externally except as the last sentence says, the page is printed. And the fact that it says printed, I think, backs up my typewriter theory that you scoffed at not so long ago. And the page is printed makes us surely think of that expanse of white snow with the fox's neat prints appearing upon it. I think it's great. I think to take on the process of creativity and think, how am I going to do this? I know I'll make inspiration into a really smelly, lame, limping fox. That's classic Ted Hughes logic, I would say. I could probably end it there, and I've done a poetry podcast that will live with you for the rest of your lives, just as the rain horse has lived with me since I was about 10. But no, I'm going to give you a bit more because uh, a bit more is what the modern world is all about. I'm going to look at one other poem uh, from the same collection from 1957. It's called The Jaguar and it's set in a zoo I will chuck in this biography, something that's often said when you uh, read about Ted Hughes and his sort of obsession with nature and its wildness and rawness, is that he worked at London Zoo. He did, I think, for two days. So I don't know how much that changed. He lived quite near London Zoo, so maybe he went to look. Anyway, this is, this is a zoo poem. I don't think I've done one of these on, the, on this uh, podcast before. It's called The Jaguar. First two stanzas, and there's only five, so it's going to be okay. The apes yawn and adore their fleas in the sun. The parrots shriek as if they were on fire or strut like cheap tarts to attract the stroller with the knot. Fatigued with indolence, tiger and lion lie still as the sun. The boa constrictor's coil is a fossil. Cage after cage seems empty, or stinks of sleepers from the breathing straw. It might be painted on a nursery wall. So you might have spotted a bit of rhyme in this. Always exciting. Strut and knot. I would say straw and wall at a stretch. Okay, so this is a sort of average zoo day. A suggestion that the zoo de-wilds animals. I know that isn't a term, but well, it is now. The apes, listen to this, uh, the vowel sounds on this. The apes yawn and adore their fleas in the sun. And for me, yawn, when you say yawn, you get that awe sound. When you say adore, it's a longer 
it's the same vowel sound but a bit longer. And you can almost feel the yawn expanding. The apes yawn and adore their fleas in the sun. The parrots shriek as if they were on fire. I think um, the overreaction of parrots is something that isn't touched often enough in, uh, in poetry. I am regularly woken up by bright green parrots that live in the trees at the top of my garden. And I don't dwell on a tropical island. I live in North London. They are parrots which some people believe are the descendants of a male and female parrot owned by the legendary guitarist Jimi Hendrix and kept in his Carnaby Street flat until one night during, uh, I would have thought, fairly regular crazy parties, they were released and went on to breed the parrots that now wake me up in the morning. I don't know if that's true, but you know what? It's a good story. Sorry, I'm losing you. The apes yawn and adore their fleas in the sun. The parrots shriek as if they were on fire or strut like cheap tarts to attract the stroller with the knot. I perhaps should apologise about the use of the term cheap tarts. That is not how sex workers are described anymore, but this is 1957. They didn't know. But they strut like cheap tarts to attract the stroller with the knot. That person walking around. This is the days when you could feed zoo animals. And so uh, that's what the parrots are trying to do. Trying to, hello, darling. Want a bit of knot action. That is uh, what's going on there. Fatigued with indolence. So just bored, just like the apes. Fatigued with indolence, tiger and lion lie still as the sun. Now, still as the sun, I can imagine, you know, the sun makes us all lazy in its intensity, but... It's a simile that also suggests menace, I think, and, and, and a sort of bobbling cauldron beneath. And with a tiger and a lion, I don't know about, about you, but when I see them, even when they are just lying, looking pretty bored at the zoo, I can feel fear. I can feel their um, strength and their savagery. And, of course, strength and savagery are the kind of things that Ted Hughes is always on the lookout for. The boa constrictor's coil is a fossil. Now, I don't know if he's talking about, what are they called, trilobites? Is that what they were called? Those sort of circular fossils that you see. And you do see snakes coiled up like that, of course, at the zoo, but also not moving. Or One of the things about this poem so far in its description of the zoo is the parrots are sort of doing a bit of superficial shrieking and strutting but the apes are still yawning and adoring their fleas the tiger and the lion are lying still the boa constrictor could be a fossil it's so still and he goes on, cage after cage seems empty or stinks of sleepers from the breathing straw. 
again, we got that stink, just like we had from the fox. And that's what he's after. He's after a representation, a contact with nature, raw nature in his poetry that we can smell. It's so vivid and so real. But that is another example of the stillness, the things, nothing's happening at this zoo. Cage after cage seems empty or stinks of sleepers from the breathing straw. And you know that feeling when you're just peering into cages and glass cases at the zoo thinking, is there anything in there? I can't, you know, they don't want to come out. It might be painted on a nursery wall. So this could be a painting of a zoo. It's so still. And it could be on a nursery wall because it's also so safe. Thus far, there's no nature red in tooth and claw to be seen. Right. Next section. And this is where it all changes. But who runs like the rest past these? So we've got the people now running past these inactive parts of the zoo, heading somewhere where the action is. But who runs like the rest past these, arrives at a cage where the crowd stands, stares, mesmerised as a child at a dream, at a jaguar hurrying, enraged, through prison darkness after the drills of his eyes, on a short, fierce fuse, not in boredom, the eye satisfied to be blind in fire, by the bang of blood in the brain, deaf the ear. He spins from the bars, but there's no cage to him, more than to the visionary, his cell. He stride his wildernesses of freedom, the world rolls under the long thrust of his heel, over the cage floor, the horizons come. So this jaguar is in stark contrast to the rest of the zoo. Constant motion. But who runs like the rest past these? So runs past all these slumbering bored animals, these silent cages. But who runs like the rest past these, arrives at a cage where the crowd stands, stares, mesmerised. So the crowd recognise that this is the real thing. As a child at a dream. Oh, of course, a child staring amazed at a dream is a complicated idea. Is it possible to stare mesmerised at a dream, I think you can maybe remember a dream and be amazed by it, certainly as a child. I think what he's trying to say here, at a cage where the crowd stands, stares mesmerised, as a child at a dream, is the jaguar doesn't feel like it's of this world. It doesn't feel like it's quite here. And... That's what makes it dreamlike. And I think it's a child mesmerised by a dream because children are not so questioning. They're not so 
cynical, not so dismissive of dreams. They embrace that different reality. As the crowd might not know it, but that's what they're doing here because this is a different reality. This jaguar is not in the zoo. Not in his mind, at least. So they're staring at a jaguar hurrying enraged through prison darkness after the drills of his eyes on a short, fierce fuse. So he's hurrying enraged through prison darkness. He doesn't know that he's imprisoned. He's following the drills of his eyes on a short, fierce fuse. So he's all about rage, all about venom. Not in boredom, the eye satisfied to be blind in fire. By the bang of blood in the brain, deaf the ear. So the language starts to break down a bit now into something very primitive, something very primal as we get close into the inner world of the jaguar. The eye satisfied to be blind in fire. He's so enraged. He doesn't see this reality around him he has his own reality so he's blind but in fire in passion and power by the bang of blood in the brain deaf the ear such is his dynamism such is his focus that this is just becomes an illusion this stuff around him it becomes irrelevant to his inspired purpose he spins from the bars but there's no cage to him more than to the visionary his cell now a visionary if one might think of say a religious visionary a monk who sees things beyond reality might be sitting in a cell but he is not in a cell is Inner being is somewhere else, seeing more and experiencing more. And that is what the Jaguar is doing. He's not in the cage. He's physically in the cage, but mentally, spiritually, he is in the jungle. His stride is wildernesses of freedom. So the way he walks is powerful driving force is representative of the total freedom of being in the wild in the jungle with all the danger and all the menace and all the rage that that requires the world rolls under the long thrust of his heel over the cage floor the horizons come so as he paces backwards and forwards, and we've all seen that, and it can be a really disturbing image seeing a wild cat doing that pacing up and down, up and down, up and down. And this creature, it seems, is on seeing, on thinking, on hearing. As he strides up and down, he's not confined. The world rolls under the long thrust of his heel. 
He is striding forward, as it says, over the cage floor, the horizons come. So that last sentence, over the cage floor, and with a cage, we think, obviously, of being confined. But over his cage floor, the horizons come. And when horizons and horizons and horizons, they're in the plural here, that means you're moving forward. And as you move forward, new horizons appear. So it doesn't matter that he's in a cage. This is the Jaguar's vision, if you like, is cosmic. It's timeless. It's about his instinct. It's about where he should be, not where he is. It's unaltered by geography. He's driven. He's obsessed. And you can't help, I can't help, because this is in the same collection as the Thought Fox, wondering if this is also a symbol of creativity, about living in the imagination. You could say that the speaker in the Thought Fox was um, the visionary in his cell, but as he sat alone with the clock ticking in front of that blank page, in his mind there was a forest, a fox and all that took over. And um, I think that's what's happened here. So I think the, the jaguar might also be a symbol for the artist, the creator, someone whose world is not the world we see, but the world that he or she feels. Like that bit in Paradise Lost when um, Lucifer says the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. So you just need to be true to yourself, I think, uh, regardless of physical location. I think that's what's being said here. Phew, I tell you, Ted Hughes, it's, it's like being in a fist fight. I feel I've been roughed up by his poetry, especially the Jaguar with its cry, almost crazed moving forward. That level of uh, focus. Phew. That was Ted Hughes and I love it actually. It is um, poetry at its most muscular and uh, exhausting but rewarding. Thanks for listening to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. And you can also catch me every Saturday at 8am on Absolute Radio. There'll be less poetry in that, but more jokes. See you next week. 